Hey everyone, I'm really excited to offer a new episode of the Global Skiing Podcast. This is a really cool episode. I interviewed a really interesting guy, Lou, from Lou's Ski Shop in Calgary. Now, he's not just a ski shop owner, he's a mechanical engineer, and he's also done quite a bit of research, probably the most research out there on ski binding placement. So where the binding is along the length of the ski. So basically where you, the skier, is attached along the length of the ski. And you'll find out in this episode that it's actually a really critical factor and it really will affect the performance of the ski. So, so Lou talks about some of the research he's done, some of the anecdotal stuff he's seen with, uh, with skiers, even high-end racers going for the national team, what they've done and things he's seen. Also his own story of realizing how important binding placement is on the ski. So some really great takeaways. I myself, I'm gonna go out and I'm gonna play with binding placement um, this season. I'm gonna pr- try some different, uh, different skis and put the binding in some different places and, and just note, like Lou suggests at the end, like what I feel, making small adjustments. So uh, one final note, if you haven't checked out my website, bigpictureskiing.com, I'd highly recommend you go and uh, take a look. So it's, it's built for ski instructors and really avid technical skiers. And what I've got there is basically all the information that's inside my head that I've learned from studying the body and really uh, taking a keen interest in skiing you know, to an obsessive level. And I'm trying to just build a library of resources on every topic out there, equipment, uh, teaching, uh, moguls, carving, whatever it is. Uh, looking after your body, all these things. And I'm basically putting it all on my website for you guys to access uh, at a really reasonable rate. And an even better rate if you use the code GLOBALSKIING, all capital letters, at checkout, and you'll get a discount on the subscription there. Okay, without further ado, here's the podcast episode. So I've got Lou from Lou's Ski Shop in Calgary, Canada, on the line here. And Lou got in touch with me through um, another friend who's um, who I know through the ski world, and he said, "You guys should you guys should chat because you've both got interesting perspectives. You you both appreciate the feet, ski boot fitting, um, biomechanics, all that sort of stuff." And and so I checked out Lou's website and realized it's not just a ski shop website. He's got articles on there about um, research and. Um, skip it fitting but but the thing that really caught my attention was his research and discussions on topics around binding position and i realized myself that's probably the weakest area of knowledge for me is binding position like i understand like a good amount about boots and the body but because there's another piece of equipment your bindings attaching to your skis and and how that's placed you'll find out today is actually really critical. So I've got Lou here today to um, discuss with us this, but yeah, that's, that's what you're going to find out. You're going to find out the importance of binding position today through some actual proper university research that Lou's done. But without further ado, let's, let's just hear from Lou and, and maybe just give us a bit of a background. Like how did you end up in the ski game and then doing research on this topic? Huh? Well, I, like I assume you, uh, grew up skiing. And then, um, and then I got out of the U.S. Navy and, and, the, and my first <clears throat> real job that I cared about was in a ski shop. 
but that was in Pennsylvania and the Pennsylvania ski season is four months long. And uh, so I was unemployed eight months of the year. So it, I, I needed to do something else. And, um, and what that turned out to be was, was going to school to becoming a mechanical engineer. And uh, so I, I guess I, I just have an engineering mind. You know, I mean, there's different, <clears throat> there's different ways to approach problems and engineers always want to know how and why. And that's just how it's it's always worked for me. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and I worked as an engineer for years. I raced cars. I crewed for a, a British national formula Ford champion. I just, I did a lot of technical stuff and somewhere along the way, um, I decided I wanted to, to stop all of that and open a ski shop. Um, the problem was that, um, and I, I should mention that when I worked in the first ski shop, uh, I was trained to make, it was in the 70s, 1975. And that, that was when foot orthotics were first being used for running and they were, they were being talked about as being necessary for almost, for almost every sport. You know, if you didn't have foot orthotics, you couldn't do anything. Uh, so I was taught how to make foot orthotics and I was taught the rudimentaries of foot biomechanics by a local podiatrist. And along the way as I played with things and skied more and, and then decided I wanted to open a ski shop. Um, as I was thinking all those things over, I realized that almost every ski shop I had walked into over the years, I, I felt like nobody could ever answer my questions. It was, you know, uh, I, I want to buy a new ski. Um, someone would recommend a ski and I'd say, well, you know, what's good, how is this ski different from that ski? And whatever it was, nobody could satisfy the way I approach things. And nobody, ha I thought, had really good answers. Um, and especially when it came to fitting ski boots and, and why everyone did what they did, right? So when I wanted to open a ski shop, I decided to get more education. And, uh, and specifically, I was interested in boot fitting and how balance and alignment affects skiing. And um, as I talked to people, it became clear that the path for me was to get a master's in biomechanics. And, uh, and I ended up in Calgary at the Human Performance Lab, um, working in a group known for foot and biomechanic research. And my hmm. research was about foot orthotics and human adaptation and while I was involved in that, I got involved in another study for Atomic on binding position. And, and after all of that, and, uh, and a, year, um, a year after graduating, when I kind of lost my way and went back to being an engineer, um, I, <laughs> I, I, I opened the ski shop. Okay. Yeah. So this first... This first um... Introduction. Well, for, actually, I'm interested from the the foot sort of orthosis study stuff. Okay. If you had to boil down, you know, a couple of key points you learnt from that, especially if they are perhaps uh, not controversial, but maybe things have been misinterpreted or misunderstood over the years. What would they be through that research cool. you've done? Um. <clears throat> Well, there's a ton of research on foot orthotics. 
And I admit that for the last years, uh, I finished my degree in 2000. Uh, I haven't kept up with all the research, but I talked to friends who still do research in foot orthotics. And it seems that things haven't changed a lot from where I was. And that is that um, there used to be an assumption that foot orthotics, that, that foot orth if you have a bad back and, and somebody diagnoses you with a foot problem, foot orthotics may help your sore back. But that's a, a, a jump to saying foot orthotics therefore help your performance in sports unless, unless having your back not hurt anymore helps your sport performance. But that isn't what we sure. used to say, right? So, mm -hmm. so what there was is this assumption that standing on a foot orthotic changed your foot position and that's how they worked. Only the research to prove that was all over the map and there was no agreement about whether foot orthotics really changed your foot position. So there were lots of theories about how foot orthotics work. Anecdotally, we know that, yeah, you know, we give someone, we give lots of people with health issues foot orthotics and their knees stop hurting and their back stop hurting. And meanwhile, they might've gone years doing physio and other things and maybe didn't work. So it's, it's okay to say foot orthotics work for those situations, but there was no proof that it helped sport performance. And, and if it did help sport performance, we didn't know how. And even if it healed your back, we didn't know how. Did it change your mm. foot position? There is a, thero, a theory, a theory by Ben O'Nig, whose group I was in uh, for a while at the university, that foot orthotics changed your foot tuning. And, and by that, we would say that the difference in proprioception by having full contact maybe underneath your foot changed change the muscle signals and, and help you change muscle activation, which you talk about, but not necessarily in light of foot orthotics, but they change, you tune your, they change the way you tune your muscles, they change the way you activate muscles, and that changes your gait and that changes everything. So there's lots of theories, um, but nobody knows what's right. And so far from what I understand, nobody still knows what's right. And there's, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> and there's still you know, people that ski without foot orthotics and there's people that are very flat footed and don't have back pain. And there's people that are very flat footed and have incredible back pain. And, and it's just mm. all over the map. Right. Yeah. And my, re my research was on adaptation and it was some of the first research that was really done. And what I had thought, and we'll talk more about that. Maybe what I had thought as I read all the studies is that, as you read the studies, the way research is typically done is if we want to find out if a golf club or a ski, if we want to find out if the ski is better for someone or not, we let someone make a run on their old ski and then we give them the new ski and we look at the differences. The problem with that is there has to be an adaptation period in all of that if we're really going to find out the true effects, right? Because people just aren't skilled enough to uh to adapt instantaneously yeah especially at a recreational level of doing things so as i read more and more i thought well one of the problems with the way we approach the, this research is that all we ever do is give someone a foot orthotic we we walk them over a force plate we videotape them on on cameras so we can measure their motion and we walk them with a without a foot orthotic and then we have them do the same walk again with a with a foot orthotic 
and we say whatever the differences are is caused by the foot orthotics. And my feeling was that, man, <laughs> there's nobody, there's no way anyone adapts that quickly. And if they do, yeah. those changes may not really be real. Maybe it takes them weeks and weeks to figure out how to really adapt to a foot orthotic. So my research was different in that I studied people for six weeks and we gave them foot orthotics and, and they, the instructions were, we gave them test shoes. So they wore the same pair of shoes and the same orthotics. Almost, it was six days a week for eight hours a day for six weeks. And every week they came back and we walked them again. And, and, and in the end we found out that the foot orthotics didn't seem to make much difference anyway. <laughs> but wow. but it, was, it was the first research that was done with, with that supposition that we needed to test over a long period. There we go. Hmm. Interesting. So then... It was a lot of work. We moved. We, yeah, a lot of work. Yeah, a lot and of then work. kind of a little bit, little bit disappointing because you don't really get any definitive answers. Right. Right. Yeah. So then you moved into finding placement research. And would you say this yielded some more definitive answers? For sure. For sure. Okay. I mean, so run us through maybe the first yeah, okay. test well, on that and what you well, found out. It's okay. The, the first test, um, without any background then, we'll get to that, I'm sure. The first test w was just research for atomic. Um, and it was just to determine um, if we move someone's bindings, what differences does it make in the way they pressure the ski? So we skied a, a group of people, um, well, not just people, racers, uh, two of them being Canadian national team members and other, other ski and a recreational group that we didn't measure forces with. Uh, with the national team skiers, we measured forces. With the recreational skiers, we didn't measure forces. And then, and then we had a group of uh, Alberta team members, so also racers, and we measured forces again. So we set them up on skis, um, let them ski runs with a force transducer underneath their foot, and we measured where they applied pressure to the ski uh, and, you know, and related it to which, which binding position they were in. And, and what we saw, um, what we saw with the national team skier um, was that the, the pressure changed slightly in terms of where it was applied, how far forward on the ski and how far back on the ski, according to how, where the binding was on the ski. If we move the binding forward, pressure was applied more forward on the ski. But the graphs were still very smooth and, and the movement from uh, moving forward at the beginning of the turn to coming gently backwards towards the end of the turn, or I should say as the whole turn progressed, and then moving forward again to the next turn was very smooth and very even for the national team skier, regardless of where the bindings were mounted. But for... Um, the Alberta team members who are still high level expert skiers, yeah. uh, when we moved their bindings around, they were all over the place. Now it's fair to say 
back to where we were a moment ago, that part of the reason would be that there's, they're simply not good enough. They don't ski well enough to respond and adapt and adapt adapt instantly. Right. National team skier, best skier in the world. Absolutely can do that. But other people just can't. So that's fair to say, and that's fair to bring up, but it's also then fair to assume based on, you know, anecdotal evidence and, and just that, that, changing their balance position and changing where they are on the ski would take them a while to adapt to. And maybe they would never make the adaptation well, right? Because it changed Mm, the way they pressure the ski. And if it changes the way they pressure the ski, we know it changes the way the ski skis. So maybe they can't make that adaptation, right? Ever. Interesting. (laughs) Interesting. Cool. So, so that was the first introductory one. And so then, uh, had you owned, did you own a ski shop at this point? No, that this was when I was in university. So this was just something I did to help out as as part of my master's. After that, can I ask you, did you do anything with your own? Did that really sort of intrigue you? And you went, Oh, are my bindings in the right place? Like, did, did that trigger it in you? No. Here's what happened for me. Okay. Something similar, though. Um, <clears throat> eventually, I said I took a year off. I lost my way. I worked as an engineer for a year once I earned my master's degree. But then I remembered, oh, you were supposed to be opening a ski shop. And it's supposed <laughs> to be a boot fitting shop. And so I went to Snowbird, Utah. Uh, from Calgary and, and worked for a year with uh, I, uh, a guy I was really fortunate to meet, a very good skier and a, and a good boot fitter and someone that was really interested in balance and alignment. And, and there uh, I worked with a tool called the Campbell Balancer in the store. And the first research we did for Atomic was, was just about quantifying what happens when you move bindings. It wasn't about saying, Tom, you walk in the store and, and I have a way to figure out where your binding should be on the ski. It was just to show that it matters, right? Mm-hmm. Then in Snowbird, we worked with a tool called the Campbell Balancer. And the purpose of the balancer was to determine the best binding position for individual skiers. And so then... I started putting two to two together and I said, Oh, there's another research project here. And this is uh, the one, yeah. this is the one that really applies to you and me and recreational skiers. Yeah. Cool. And, and this was right at the beginning of, I mean, back then we would have called them shape skis, but there were no skis with rocker tip or anything like that. All we had was more side cut. So uh, it was easy to compare one ski to another and, and measure binding positions and, and see that some skis, some whole brands are mounted in front of other brands. And I was skiing at that time, I was skiing on a vocal. Mm-hmm. And as I learned more and more and more and did more measurement and talked to more people, I found out that vocals and atomics and fishers and at that time, kind of all the Austrian skis 
um, that if we would read about on a ski test, the ski test would say, great ski, hold really well, super stable at speed, kind of difficult to ski, right? Not very forgiving, don't get in the back seat. And then if you'd read about French, <laughs> French skis or American skis, they'd be not as stable at speed, but quick and lively and easy and playful and fun, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. and, um, and so I was skiing vocals. And one of the problems I always had with my skiing, especially in bumps, was inability just to stay balanced. And I'd always find myself in the back seat. And, and it would be like, you know, three turns in and then, oh, damn, I just missed a turn, you know, and you do the traverse across the bumps and get yourself all gathered back up again and then get started. And, um, and we balanced me and, and measured the binding position on the vocals I was using and said, oh, <laughs> why don't we move your bindings forward three centimeters? And we did that. And the very first run was like one of the best runs I made that year. And that's when... Because of the contrast, I, I guess, like you'd been skiing with, yeah, like yeah. hard hard to ski and, and do everything. And then suddenly... Suddenly, wow. I, just, I went from having to think... It used to be... Before that, it was like, okay, I'm going to turn. So now I'm getting ready to turn. I'll move myself forward a little bit and get against the front of the boot, get against the front of the boot. And, you know, it's kind of like this thing you rehearse in your head. And, and that's the way I used to have to ski those skis. And then as soon as we moved me forward three centimeters, then it just all happened automatically. I just stood there, put the skis on edge and they turned and I didn't lose my balance. I didn't get as far in the back seat. And, and then I started putting it together. So then, then we did the research for Nordica on the balancer to see if it actually was a tool that could be used to determine binding position and if it was interesting it was functional so we should probably quickly describe to people sure. this campbell balancer okay um and and how you go through balancing yourself okay on it the, the campbell balancer is essentially a seesaw or teeter-totter. I don't know what term is used where, but they're the same thing. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, and you stand on it, not, not with your skis. It isn't about finding a balance point for your skis. It's about finding where you balance. And so there's, it's a seesaw, there's a fulcrum, and, and the fulcrum is somewhere under your foot. And, and as you move forward and backward, and you purposely tip, the, the Campbell balancer for, yeah, the seesaw yeah. Uh, yeah. or the Campbell balancer. As you yeah. tip it forward and backward, you can find a point where it's as easy to tip forward as it is to tip backward. And we would say that's your balance point. And, and it could be with the, depending on, you know, your anatomy and the length of your foot and all of those things. It could be with the tip of your boot five centimeters in front of the fulcrum or nine centimeters in front of the fulcrum or 11, whatever it is, um, it was, it was accurate. And, and people picked the same point. We moved people forward and backward on it. Um, we didn't tell them where we were moving them to. We didn't tell them what the position they were in. And it was very repeatable. Not only was it repeatable for me, 
but the other person that was doing the research with me, we wanted to test the repeatability of the balancer. It was repeatable for him, and he and I found the same spot for all the different subjects. So it was very mm-hmm. repeatable. Oh, hang on a second. We're, we're jumping onto the, oh, the next re- okay. yeah, research thing. So we've, right. just, we've just talked about the, the Campbell balancer and how it sorry. works so, and that so everyone's going to be you're right. different. Yeah, it's a teeter-totter so, for underneath your feet. Yeah. And the balance point. And then we would say that that balance point, the fulcrum, the fulcrum of the teeter-totter is the same as the center of the running surface of your ski. So you can duplicate yes. the position we find on the seesaw or teeter-totter to the ski so that if, if you balanced on it with the toe of your boot nine centimeters forward from the fulcrum of the teeter-totter, your binding position or your boot position on the ski should be the tip of your boot nine centimeters forward from the center of the running surface. Yeah. That way you have and a so, surface in front of your balance point as you do behind your balance behind point. Behind it, yeah. Yep. So, so in, in another word, way of saying it, you've, you've equally easy access to pressuring the front half of the ski as yes. the back half of the ski. Yes. Yeah. Okay, yeah. cool. Exactly. But yeah, for your individual anatomy. And, and I mean, like people are probably going, oh, but you know, you're not seesawing on your skis as you do, go down the hill. So but it's just, it's just an assessment tool, isn't it? And, and a teeter-totter is a great way of finding out, like, yeah, whether you've got access to the front yeah. or the back or is it biased one way, one way or another. Well, and, it, and that's still occurring even as your ski's fully locked on a huge, you know, 50-degree edge angle carving. Like, you still want to be, I guess, naturally feeling like your weight basically settles to the middle and it's your choice if you want to pressure the tip or right. it's your choice if you want to pressure the tail. And on your vocals, you are basically always, it's easy to pressure the tails, which <laughs> is where right. you got the speed stability and you, you was working like a dog that's, to get to the exactly tip. That's exactly right. Because you have to get to yeah. the tip to get the ski to start to turn, right? Mm-hmm. And, and if, if you have to get to the tip by bringing your body forward, um, that takes some repeatability and some skill. Yeah and uh, that you need to keep working on. Where if you're in a position where you already have as much pressure on the tip as you do on the tail, um, the ski just just starts to work and and it it does everything for you, which is really the whole purpose of the new ski designs, right? Yeah. Yeah. So this triggered some some real, we'll get to the research, the next research topic soon, but this triggered me straight away after you first told me about this to go and try and figure out a way of doing that test myself. And I sort of, I haven't told you this yet, but, but at home I've got some dumbbell weights that, that are like hexagonal edged. Yeah, so, okay. so they're essentially right. So, so when you place them on the ground, they don't roll. Right. But then they create this bar that you could basically put a, like I put a ski on to create a teeter totter. Okay. Okay. So I was kind of using my ski as a teeter-totter and, and I've got new skis. I haven't put the bindings on. I put the ski on. So it's essentially just a teeter-totter. So I was playing around with, okay, where have I got to put the sole of my boot so I can do the, do the tip the teeter-totter forward, tip the teeter-totter back and feel, feel easy the same. And then, then that's basically my 
teeter-totter, fulcrum point, I would just mark mark that. Yeah. And it's not always, it's not, a, yeah, I mean, it's basically around the ball, the foot for most people, isn't it? Pretty close. Yeah. Seems yeah. to be. Yeah. Could you make any assumptions on like long torso people or big hips, short legs people? Like, have you seen that? Like, can you kind well, of I haven't, see people? I haven't done research then to try and look at body types and, and say what's going on. What, what we can say, I think, and we need a bit of history if, if, if you want it now, yeah. is that yeah. most people balance around the ball of their foot on, on the Campbell balancer. And in the old days, before, before we had marks on skis, and it wasn't really that long ago, uh, we started marking skis sometimes in the late 70s or early 80s. Until then, bindings were, were mounted ball of foot center of running surface. So if you came into the store and you bought a pair of skis from me, I would take your boots downstairs and look at them and try and estimate where the ball of your foot was in the boot. And I would actually do the measurements to find the center of the running surface. And I would put as accurately as I could the ball of your foot over the center of the running surface. And that's the way skis were mounted back then. And, uh, and, and we were given a window of plus, plus or minus one centimeter to say, if we want the ski to be a little quicker and livelier, we'll move it forward a centimeter. And if we want it to be a little more stable at speed and a little more GSE, we'll move it back a centimeter. Okay? Mm -hmm. And that's the way skis were mounted. The problem with that system is that it's slow. And, and I had to guess where the ball of your foot was. And I might guess different every day. And certainly the person across the street might guess differently. And the other ski shop might guess differently. So it meant that there was no reliability in, in you being mounted the same all the time as you, as you change skis. So you could demo a ski and, and say you really liked it and then actually buy it and be mounted in a completely different position and the ski doesn't ski at all the same anymore, right? So there were lots of problems with the system. So the industry got together and decided to just do away with all the inaccuracy and take some control themselves. And they came up with a system that is the center of the boot goes over a mark on the ski and the ski manufacturer puts the mark on the ski. But obviously the problem with that is that the ball of your foot floats all over the place then. The ball of your mm. foot doesn't. It's always in the same position. But if you are, for instance, a men's 11, and there's another man that is a men's 7, and you're both on the same ski, the ball of his foot is substantially behind the ball of your <laughs> foot. And yet we haven't changed anything about ski designs yet. Right? So, yeah. that, so there's a real problem with that system. Um, so that's where the Campbell balancer came in and um, mm. how we started looking around and got me thinking that, you know, there, there, there's something we can do here. And that's how the Campbell balancer was developed. I mean, the guy just thought yeah. he was a ski instructor and his wife was a ski instructor. And he thought, I wonder if there's a better way to do this than the new system. And so what makes the Camel Balancer work and what's interesting about it is that most people balance on the Camel Balancer about the ball of their foot. We used to mount skis ball of foot center of running surface. 
So if anything, it, it to me just strengthens the idea that ball of foot center of running surface is at least a very reasonable way to mount skis. Yes. Yeah. And just, just in case people don't know, uh, surface, uh, running, running surface, running surface of a ski. Do you want to give us a quick, yeah. just... the running surface of the ski is that portion of the base that touches the snow when, when the ski is just flat on the snow. So flat, kind of groomed run or we would do it on a table right and if you if you flatten the ski um where the tip starts to curve up would be the beginning of the running surface right where the ski touched and at the tail the same thing and, same and thing. the same thing and you'd measure the distance and then divide it in half and mark that center point and that's the center of the running surface yeah all the foot on that yeah. you know what's interesting is um so one, one sort of assessment I do with every you know, client that comes in to see me when they're coming in here for pain or performance in their body is I will find out, I'll try and assess where they prefer to balance on their feet. Okay. And yeah, it, it, it changes on a lot of people. Like obviously the ball, the foot is a much more ideal place, but a lot of people don't use that for whatever reason, history, uh, lifestyle, genetics, that's, you know, like active or lazy, that sort of stuff. And so, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so it's interesting, even, even thinking back to Thomas Grandy, the national team guy, and even the Alberta ones, like he's obviously fine tuned his body to really have a very consistent balance point and very aware of that. And so he's just, as soon as he gets on something, he adapts and finds that spot on sure. whatever equipment. Well, well, you can do on. that when you've been on a podium at World Cup slalom, right? But but the rest of the world has a harder time. No, yeah, and the rest of the world is the majority of the skiing population. For so sure. helping them out, you know, is really sure. is a bit is a big yeah, yeah. It's a contributing factor. We want to we want to kind of solve that. So what's been interesting on this whole journey then for me was that um, when we did the research for Atomic, which was in, I think, 1999 or 2000, and by then we're 20 years or so down the road of marking skis, right? And, and having a center mark on the boot and a mark on the ski and the two marks go over each other. So when we're doing the research for Atomic, I was not the principal researcher. I was an assistant, but, um, but I had worked in a ski shop for seven years and nobody else had. So I was the one who knew how to mount bindings. I was the one who knew how it was done, uh, but the lead researcher needed to be a PhD. So um, I helped set the methods. And I, I was the one that was in touch with the director of design at Atomic. And, and I, I asked, um, how do you, how do you figure out where the mark goes on the ski for recreational skiers? And the answer was, well, we designed the ski and then we send a bunch of ski testers out to test it and we move the bindings forward and back. And, you know, I don't know, they have some kind of meeting and they talk about how they want the skis to ski and they decide where the mark goes. Said, Fine. Sounds perfectly logical. And then I said, well, how do you determine, 
where your national team skiers are mounted. And then he said, oh, well, we mount them ball of foot center of running surface and then we send them out. <laughs> and, uh, and the difference on atomic skis and all those skis uh, between ball of foot center and running surface and, and the mark, if you compare the two things, um, I would typically be moved three centimeters forward on the vocals and the atomics and fissures from that generation, right? So mm. if, I put, if I put my boot, the center of my boot on the center of the mark on the ski and skied and measured that, and then measured ball of foot, and, and then I should say measured Campbell balancer to center of running surface, my Campbell balance position, which is very close to the ball of my foot, would be about three centimeters forward. And mm. three centimeters is huge. It is. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. A anyone you like any anecdotal evidence of in, in your shop that you find like expert skiers tend to want it back or forward, or is that again, it's still the, it's to the individual well, thing. No, I, I can't answer your question. Not because it's an individual thing. I can't answer your question because nobody does this anymore. Right. Mm -hmm. So we're so, you know, when I, when we did the research for Nordica at Snowbird, um, this was after I'd already talked to directors, uh, you know, I'd done more research than almost anyone in the world on this or been involved in some way. And um, anyone in the world other than the ski, the, the ski manufacturers themselves. And I've talked to uh, the director of design from Atomic who tells me the way they, they do it and they use ball of foot center of running surface and everything else. And, and then I'm, I'm riding up the chairlift with a woman I'd known all year and she was a PSIA demo team member. And she'd probably been teaching for 40 years. I mean, she, she's a mighty fine skier. And, um, and, and she looked me in the eye on the chairlift and she said, I know about the research you're doing and it's a bunch of crap. She said, everybody knows that, you know, the engineers designed the binding position into the ski and there's only one correct place for it to be. And oh, so, wow. so it, it just shows how ingrained all of this is, you know, how we just kind of make assumptions, right? Well, yeah. here's these marks, the engineers must've done something and, and she's yeah. never played around with it and tried to learn anything about it. And so I know she's wrong because the guys who designed the skis have told me she's wrong, but there's yeah. nothing to say about it. So now um, in my store, I urge people to experiment with binding position, but, but I don't know that they do anymore. Some people certainly do but mm -hmm. most, most people don't, they just go ski, right? And most yeah. instructors, there's no place in, in PSIA or CSIA curriculum that talks about moving bindings around to help people balance differently. So nobody knows anything about it, it's just gone. And we accept yeah. that here's where your boot goes and, uh, and you just learn how to ski there. Mm. Do you know what I think, I was, I, was, I was thinking back because uh, I don't know if you knew, but I came from more telemarking. Like I was a telemarker before Alpine. Okay. And so you've obviously mounted tele skis like that. There's no, like, it's a very, you mount ball of foot yep. <laughs> center of yep. running service. Like I remember sure. now, I remember That's going right. back and I was like, this is such a pain in the ass. Like I have to 
every alpine pair of skis i have to like do this longer thing it's not just this yeah. preset zzz, zzz, that's real right. yet yeah. yet it was good for me because i really like i got a sense of how much that affected my tele skiing because because you're not locked in at the back you've got to balance more you could really feel when a ski was hard to turn or the tail just was just breaking away really easily so yeah just th that came to me the other day because i've been yeah. spending more time on alpine and story. i'm like ah yeah. right that's why like i felt it a lot more on on telemark skis well um, you would you would feel it on your current skis non-tele skis yeah. if if you go out and and play around with it you'll feel it um that's that's my mission this this season good. lou be, you, yeah be, i'm gonna be i'm gonna be as much as those things move and I'm going to drag out my, uh, yeah. my um, vocals with the R motion, the, 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 the adjustable right. um, binding to really right. play with it. And I've been speaking with a couple of friends and, 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 and they move all their bindings. I'm like, this is something I've just never done except when I tell them that. Right. But since I got into well, Alpine, I just assumed. I have so many, you know, <laughs> stories about it. I was asked years ago when I came back and opened the store, I was asked to do a presentation to the Alberta Ski Coaches Federation, um, if that's what it's called. But anyway, it was all the, all the ski coaches in Alberta, and I was asked to talk to them about binding position. And, and there, there were two things. It was from the same, the same guy who, who I can't name, but his brother was, uh, was a, national, a famous national team skier, and he was a, a pro skier. And the first thing he said to me was, I don't like moving bindings forward because the skis are slower. And I think he's probably right, especially mm -hmm. in the S. And he was a technical skier. And, uh, and so the skis would be a little slower. But, but who cares as a recreational skier? I've got more, I've got more speed than I know how to manage anyway. Right? Yeah. The care yeah. is that it's easy for me to stay balanced and I'm always in control. Yeah. Um, I'm going to go as fast as I want to go. If I just keep going down the fall line, certainly on, yeah. on any run from a hard blue up, right? Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to have to. <laughs> uh, so that was the first thing he said. But the second thing he said was, um, and then I said, well, but for your athletes that aren't as skilled as you are, um, maybe it's harder to ski. And he kind of scratched his head and that was, you know, as far as it went, but, but, <laughs> My thinking is that it, it's great that the skis are faster, slower, but, but at the, I'm a, you know, I'm a U16 level or a U14 level. What's more important to me is that I need to be able to keep my balance and I need to be able to not make mistakes and I need to be yes. able to learn what you're trying to teach yes. me and everything needs to be working easily and the same all the time. And when I'm as good as you are and I make the national team, then we'll start playing around with ski setup that I can work with and maybe is harder to ski, but could also be faster in certain circumstances, provided I don't make a mistake. Right. But the other thing he said was, you know, I was at Panorama years ago and it was funny. It was about atomic and, and I, a lot of my athletes were using atomics. And it was just before, I don't know if you know, but, but the first downhill of the year is at Lake Louise, right? And all, yeah. the, na all the national teams are here, and they're oftentimes training at Panorama.
So um, he said all of our atomics were against the fence and, uh, and we just happened to be next to national team skiers. I don't know what team, but, but national team skiers atomics. And I noticed that all of, the, all of their skis were mounted forward of my athlete skis. Huh. And it was because at the junior level, we wow. use boot marks. And at yep. the national team level, they use ball of foot center of running surface. So, yep. so the best skiers in the world had their skis forward and easier to ski than kids that were still learning, learning wow. their skills. So uh, I think it's really important. And if people yeah. found it, depending on what ski they're on, you know, they may or may not find a different position that's better, but it's an experiment they should do. It can really dramatically help their skiing. Yeah. And that was, that was probably the number one reason I decided we should record this and share it is because now people have some information to, and some permission almost to freely experiment. Whereas, you know, if, if someone had heard about this as a great find and they maybe went and asked that person you described on the chairlift, that demo team member, and that demo team member comes back to them from a position of sort of authority and, right. and guru status. No, it's rubbish. Don't do it. That, that other person might just be like, okay. And then <clears throat> it could, it, who knows what it could be, but it could be the thing that just suddenly like you in Snowbird, <laughs> you had the run of your life. Right. Like, you know, you, yeah. so I thought this is really important. So there's, there's a, a, a skier you told me about a young female racer that ended up with a bit of a tragedy. Can you, can you just tell us that story? Yeah. As long as I, I, I want to be a little careful, right. Cause I don't want to yeah. blame the tragedy on, but, but um, she was maybe, I'm not sure, but maybe the youngest girl named to the Canadian national team a few years ago. She made the national B team at either 15 or 16. And, uh, and she had been, I did her boot fitting and we did her equipment set up and we balanced her on the Campbell balancer and ended up moving her about three centimeters forward. And that year she just had a fabulous year. And, but obviously she had before as well, but uh, cause she was already one of the top juniors in the country, mm. but she had a great year and, uh, and that's when she was named to the B team. And then the next year, um, her coaches moved her back because, well, For whatever because, reason. Yeah, who knows? Speed, maybe they, maybe. They, didn't, they didn't believe it. Or like the coach I had talked to before, they thought she would be faster with the skis further back. I mean, when skis are further, when bindings are further back and the tip isn't as pressured, skis don't turn in as quickly right and they don't turn in as much so it so it you don't turn they don't come out of the fall line as quickly so it's yeah. reasonable it's reasonable to think that in a race course you're going to be faster provided you have good runs right so it, it's it's a reasonable assumption for racing yeah yeah that uh, that skis might be faster um if you're back so then they so they moved it back and then what happened? Well, as I say, I don't want to blame it on that, but, but towards the end of the season, she fell and tore her ACL. And uh, yeah. I, I don't want to blame it on that. I, I don't have a way to do that. But what, yeah, what we, we can't, no. What we Not do know, what we do know and, and you'll find out as you move bindings around, is that 
as you move bindings back, it definitely becomes harder to stay out of the back seat. Having bindings back on the ski gets you into the back seat. Mm -hmm. you, you have yeah, okay. to constantly bring yourself forward to get the turn started. And then yes. as the turn progresses, you get pushed back again. And then you have to bring yourself forward again, unless you're very, yes. very, and, and you, you obviously are, but, um, and Thomas Grandy was, but still you, you'll feel the difference and it'll be interesting to see. Um, yeah. I mean, and, even and, just, just the simple thought of if, if, if everyone had like a mini teeter totter in their backyard and you just stood on it, where you where you couldn't balance the teeter totter like so that the the front and the back of the teeter totter are off the ground. If you were stuck where it just always wanted the tails wanted to drop, drop. Right. Just imagine standing there for hours, like it's sort of tiring, and you yeah you're just not set up that well. So it makes. I mean, I def I like thinking in terms of levers and and fulcrums, you know, all over the body, and and that's how we get mechanical advantage or there's a mechanical disadvantage to where that fulcrum is placed relative to the effort and the, and the load. And so that's, yeah, I think that's, that's really right. all you're doing. I think that's right. And, and so really for me, the message is um, we can't necessarily um, work with the camel balancer the way we used to because skis have rocker now and, and, and they, they just work differently right? The, the yeah. length of the running surface changes as we put the skis on edge now. And, and more and more, the tip starts to contact the snow. And that didn't used to happen with old designs. So it's a little hard to know how to use the Campbell balancer now. However, everything about balancing is the same. And, and it's quite possible. First off, a lot of running skis are still old design and they don't have any rock or a lot of racing skis. I should have said still have old design and they don't have any rocker. So for racing and for, um, kind of go fast skis, right? Just front side carving skis. A lot of them still don't have any rocker and the Campbell balancer should be functional. But even if you don't have access to a Campbell balancer, the idea of experimenting with your binding position is absolutely valid. And just, yeah. just, Last week, I talked to, I was talking about this because I knew you and I would be talking. So I was talking about this to the head of design for Stookley. And I said, what do you do about binding positions? And he said, well, on skis shorter than 160 centimeters, we move the bindings forward between a centimeter and a centimeter and a half. And that's just an acknowledgement that typically we're thinking about women in that length, but that's an acknowledgement that shorter feet need to be moved forward on the ski to get the pressure to the same place. Yeah. 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 Interesting. So should we, maybe we should let you talk about the, uh, the more recent research with the Campbell balancer. Cause as we go, we sort of rewind the story back and you're in snowbird and you went, ah, maybe ah, we okay. should do some research on that to see what happens. So yeah, <laughs> maybe skipped over give that. us. So, yeah. so the research at snowbird was, um, we had seven volunteers. It was supported by Nordica. Everyone was on, almost everyone was on Nordica skis. We balanced people on the camel balancer, checked repeatability um, between Steve Bagley and myself. And um, 
and then found the balance position for everyone, didn't tell them what the balance position was and, uh, and sent them out to ski with us. So two separate days, right? One day to find everybody's balance position, assign it to them, and then another day to go skiing. And we gave them skis and we had a, you know, a set blue run and they skied from me to him kind of thing. And we told them to make, you know, their regular kind of turns. And we made several runs, moving their bindings forward and backward, but never telling them which position was the balance position and which position was the factory position. And at the end of each run, uh, someone else was there to interview them and get their opinion of the run. And then at the end of several runs, uh, we said, okay, let's, let's go skiing for the day. Um, where should we put your bindings to go skiing? Every single person without knowing it, uh, pick, the pick the balance position instead of the factory position. And the average, if I remember right, was forward between two and a half and three centimeters. Hmm. So it, it absolutely worked. It absolutely made a difference. Um, everybody liked their, their Campbell balance runs more than the factory position runs. There were men and women in the test. And uh, it, it showed for us that the Campbell balancer worked. And, and it certainly shows that there's reason to experiment with binding position if you're going to go skiing. Yeah. Yeah. I just remember, uh, I don't know if you've listened to the podcast episode where I interviewed Yuri Franco. I have not yet. He's, uh, do you know who he is? I don't. He's uh, sort of, I guess, the, the inventor of the parabolic ski, I guess, for Alain back in the day. He was... Um, okay. That was his project to basically, yeah, take that, um, take that, like figure out that ski, a carved ski. Right. <clears throat> anyway, he, um, he was doing testing on what makes a ski skid. Like, what is it? And so he took like a child ski, um, an adult ski, a women's ski, a race ski, all these different skis and had them set in the snow on a consistent surface like across the fall line. And then he had like a, a, a pressure gauge. So he would pull the ski like a side slip direction from the middle of the binding and pull it down the slope and see how much pressure it took before the ski lost grip and skidded. They all pretty much were exactly the same. Doesn't matter if it was a kid ski or a full blown fist ski when it was done that way. The differentiating factor that made a ski skid was the placement of where the pull side or down the slope okay. is from, which is just the, it's just the binding position thing again. Right. Because there's basically a, a center point on a ski where it's like torsionally the strongest and you're not, you're not sort of changing the interaction of the, the tip and the tail holding right. the same on the snow. And so that if there's a difference, you're going to get torque a rotation and then there's going to be a skidding moment because they don't line right. up. So it's essentially like it's acknowledging the same factor. That sounds like the, the, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. 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 So you'll have to listen to that one. because will. You'll probably get it. Mm -hmm. I mean, honestly, you'll hear me in it and I don't get it <laughs> a little bit. It takes me a little while to get it. And then, but it was a huge like breakthrough and understanding for me. And then in my lessons and teaching people, people just don't, 
understand how important this fore and aft pressure on the ski is. It doesn't matter if you're like Ted Ligeti and can put your hip on the snow. You're in the wrong spot fore and aft on the ski at a, at a critical point. There's torque and the ski will break. Yeah, I think that, uh, that it's important. I mean, in my store, we try and pick skis that are easy to ski. Uh, very high performance, but easy to ski. So I know I can just sell them to everybody. And, um, and then there are other skis that have a reputation for being a bitch to ski on. Great skis, provided you don't mind skiing on a ski that's a bitch to ski, right? <laughs> and, uh, but we tend not to pick them to sell in the store because I don't, I don't have a I don't have a story I can tell about them. I, I mean, the story is, this is a great ski, you'll like it, but be good, you know, be aware, ski it really hard. Or here's this other ski on the other side of the wall. It does everything just as well, but it's really forgiving and it's easy. Um, I don't have a way to, to sell the ski that's hard to ski for most Can skis. you give me the, an example of what, each of those skis from last season, maybe? Mm, not so much, because we have the same skis historically every year right got but, it but if if we would have gone back to what you and i were first talking about in the in the 80s and the 90s and things all of those german or austrian skis austrian. i mean i remember reading in ski magazine it didn't matter if i was reading a test on a fisher or a vocal or an atomic it was always the same great skis but challenging the ski right stay forward don't get in the back seat ski hard and then if I read about a Rosignol or a K2 or some of the others, it was always light, lively, fun, easy. So, mm -hmm. You know, go play. Um, and the difference as I got involved in the research and started measuring things was that absolutely the Fisher and the Atomic and the Vocals were all mounted behind the Rossies and the Dynamites and the K2s. And when I could compare running surface, it was absolute. So mm. it made it clear to me that the biggest difference between those skis wasn't the, it wasn't the design of the ski that made them more challenging to ski. It was the binding position. If you move mm. the bindings forward, they ski just the same. Yeah. Rossi's yeah. a vocal, right? And vocal's a Rossi yeah. if you get the binding <clears throat> positions right. Now, now things are more varied because because of rocker and because there's just so many differences in skis now. Yeah. But their, their ability to be tuned by binding position isn't changed at all. Yeah. You can so, play with that. Yeah. So it's hard now, certainly as I ski on vocals and some other skis now, it's, uh, it's evident to me from the way they ski that on some of their skis, they've moved the bindings forward. And, and when I talked to them about, for instance, the woman's aura ski from several years ago, right? When they brought that series out um, and we measured them the diff and we talked to them, the differences were two, the bindings were moved forward and the bindings were flattened and they didn't have as much binding delta anymore. But binding delta isn't part of this discussion. Um, yeah, have you that, done- uh, That could be another I one. mean. Have you done research? Have you been involved in research on binding delta as well? I haven't seen any. I'm not aware of any. We, I've skied with varying binding delta. I've fixed people's problems with, especially with sore knees and, 
and burned out quads uh, by reducing delta. I know that a lot of World Cup quickly, race, yeah. Just so people, if they're listening, because they're listening to this, delta is the difference in the heel and to the, the toe. toe piece height. Yeah. Yeah. So, or, or, yeah. So, measured, so I measured in millimeters. Yes. Yeah. So more binding delta, the heel is higher. So, like, if extreme example, you're in high heeled shoes. Right. Yeah, and you so fix some people by basically taking them out of high heels and putting them flat. For sure. And and the other interesting thing, it's kind of like the 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 race thing in binding position, is that a lot of recreational bindings have less delta than they used to, but some of them still have substantial delta, um, as much as six six millimeters and more. Especially tech bindings, Turing bindings can have huge delta, and mm. uh, but World Cup race bindings, we're pretty flat now. Atomic's yep. flat, yeah. Rosie's flat. I remember back to yeah. back to Telemark again. I can remember mm -hmm. always that, that when I first tried, I think I like because the different binding brands in Telemark tend to basically induce more delta, so put you on your tiptoes or not. Right. And I can remember finally finding a binding, um, the Hammerhead. It was like a 22 Designs Hammerhead binding, it's called. And it really pulled your heel down and the toe and heel height was the same. And, and even touring Telemark boots had that rocket sole, like the toe piece. Right. So as soon as you moved your weight forward, it really rolled you like onto the tiptoes. So you're really overbalancing forward. And, and I see so many Telemarkers, I mean, not so that I don't notice anymore, but I remember back in the day when I used to teach a lot, Part of the problem was trying to teach people who are basically just skiing on their tiptoes the whole time because the binding and the boot forced them there. Well, so I, I, yeah, I really know. And, and you know, it's much worse because you've got nothing really as this cable tension holding your heel down. But in, in an alpine binding, right, you, you've got, right. it's really solidly down. So you kind of don't notice as much and you've got this big stiff cuff. Telemark, you don't get any of that. So you just, See people sliding all over the place, stemming and... What yeah. happens a lot of times in alpine skiing with a lot of binding delta is people tend to ski with a lot of, uh, with, with some ankle flexion and knee flexion and, and they lean against the tongue of the boot, but then they bring their back absolutely vertical yes. to keep them from falling on their face and they end yeah. up actually skiing in the back seat and they don't have any hip flexion. So they're all locked up and they can't move anymore, right? And yeah. they're in the back seat. Um, there was a time, I think that that's, you agree? That's totally. Yeah. hundred percent. There, yeah. there was a time several years ago. I don't remember her name right now. There was a woman instructor in the U S who had kind of decided that all women should ski with a lot of Delta. And this is one of the problems for me with the ski industry and probably most sports is that, is that they jump on the latest fad and, and all the anecdote without doing the research. So she was making a big deal about how necessary it was for women to have lots of Delta. And Rosignol introduced a whole line of skis with lots of Delta. And, um, <laughs> and in two years, the whole thing was gone, right? Because it's, yeah. it's completely wrong. Yeah. It's wrong. It's not to say there aren't <laughs> some people that can't be better off with lots of Delta, but in general, sure. in general, for sure not. And boots mm. already have Delta built into them. 
right? So boots already have delta built into them, and then and then you add even more in the bindings. Yeah, yeah. Have you seen? I mean, you're privy to, you know, the next season's boots, or even just what you're seeing the trend in now. Are you seeing the ramp angle inside the boot, so that toe heel height difference it, changing over years? I think it's come down marginally, but okay. but not very much. Um, the big difference is that bindings are flatter. And, and mm. for the bindings that aren't flat, for instance, Head still makes some race bindings with, uh, with a four millimeter delta. But again, that's kind of back to a racing thing where we would say that's on their GS binding and speed binding where we would say, okay, having a little bit of delta. Um, they can get in a tuck easier. That may be, but also you don't have as much pressure on the tip of the ski. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Right? So not as squirrely. And so the ski doesn't yeah. respond as quickly. So yeah. again, maybe the ski is faster in a course. Um, so the big difference has been in bindings, but even in their bindings that, that have Delta, it's they, they make a whole series of shins to take all the Delta out if we want to. So we would just test with the athletes and see what they like. Right. And we've done a lot of that. Mm. Interesting. I so, think, I, I mean, if it was my choice, I think everyone should have zero Delta. And especially for people that have lots of skis, they should all be set the same, right? Because you jump from ski to ski and, and marker, this marker binding has a different Delta than the Tyrolean on, on this head ski and the marker on this vocal and the atomic. And, you know, people have lots of skis, especially if they live in ski country and they're good skiers. And then, and then they ski completely differently on each ski. I'd love to see everyone get all their bindings set up at either at zero or at the same delta so that at least the way they, at least their stance on each ski can be the same. Mm, yeah, excellent. So Lou, if we're uh, sort of wrapping up, I guess like summarizing the key points, one is binding position absolutely matters. Absolutely matters. The research shows that. Yeah. So two, go out and if you can do some of your own testing yep. and yeah, any, any hints on doing that? Like, well, you know, consistent pit, like the same run, like, would you like those obvious kind of things? Yeah. I, I, well, I think a couple of things, I hope were obvious. Um, if you're going to go out and experiment with your ski setup, um, you don't change your ski setup and then go, and ski the toughest run on the mountain with, with, with bumps that are over your head, right? I mean, mm-hmm. you, you make gradual changes. And I would say on, on consistent, probably groomed uh, blue runs, you know, something easy uh, where you can feel the differences and you're not working on control. And then, and then the real differences are more obvious. And then as, yeah. you, as you understand the changes, then you can move on the more and more difficult terrain and whatever it is you normally ski. But yeah. I wouldn't do the experiment on the hardest run you can find, right? I do the experiment yeah. where it's, where it's easy and safe. Yeah. yeah. Be good if you had like a, a buddy for instance, and you both went, okay, we're going to go, this is three centimeters forward of our spot. And then they get to the bottom and they each, you know, write down little notes like, 
felt yep. this part of the term is easy. Da, da, da. So then you, cause you might find different, like, like you've pointed out, you're going to find different characteristics in the ski, different depending on the position. So at least but you're. If, yep. But if I was yeah. going to do the experiment, I wouldn't even decide, okay, I'm going to move it three centimeters. I would decide, I don't know how far I'm going to move it. So I'm going to move it one centimeter. And then uh -huh. if, if I like that more, one more. then one more. And, and yeah. I go little jumps at a time so that it isn't a Perfect. big change in my balance. And then I'd keep going until I don't like it anymore. And then I'd come back and, and you know, slowly Perfect. go back and forth. Yeah. Great, great advice. Okay, cool. So there, uh, there I guess, are the main key so. takeaways, right? Yeah. Yeah, which is it's pretty simple. So definitely something I'm very interested to do and, and I'm going to chat next with a guy, uh, Tim Cave from New Zealand. And he, he raced for New Zealand and he's also was involved in coaching Alice Robinson, okay. the, the up and coming New Zealand ski racer. And I asked him about this topic and, um, and he said, Oh, well, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about it more. But he said he used it as a training. He moved her bindings for training effect. So, okay. Like to teach her things. Yeah. yeah. I'd like, I'll have so. to listen and hear what he did. Yeah. And then that was actually the probably start of the first last season in New Zealand. He adjusted. He saw so my, my slalom ski, the plate, the piston plate, mm -hmm. the, the front toe piece area. There's two ways you can mount it, either GS or slalom style. So it basically stiffens the four body toe piece area or softens it. Right. And for some reason, vocal set, set that piston plate up in the GS position, even though it's a slalom ski and he switched it yeah. to the slalom position. And I, it was like, uh, my bump skiing was so much more enjoyable after that. And oh, my turns felt rounder if I want, you know, if I could put a descriptive word to right. it because of like a two centimeter, one and a half centimeter difference in the flex and binding hold on the ski so i was i was just amazed i was like okay and then he did some other things he did that to to one of the other guy in the rookie academy's bindings who was having some trouble you know with a brand new ski and then you know he did some tuning and then he did that to the binding the guy ended up really liking the skis after that and then another girl on a pair of rosies she was in totally in the wrong spot and like oh, like a, yeah so he's obviously got a lot of experience in in bindings and so i was just seeing all these people like getting feeling better more comfortable getting what they want out of the ski through just binding adjustment right. and that, that sort of well you know awesome. one of the things that's interesting and this will be maybe the last thing and we'll sign off um that i i hear all the time in the store you may hear it from time to time too but maybe me more because you know, at the store, we're talking about ski setup and we talk about tuning and all the things we talk about. And, and there's always a whole group of recreational skiers that say, I'm not, you know, I'm just a recreational skier. I don't need any of that. I'm not good enough to notice the difference. Like it doesn't matter to me if my edges are sharp. I, I don't. And, <laughs> and it's funny because to me, it's exactly the opposite, right? Yeah. The less skilled I am, the better my equipment better be because yeah. if my, if I don't <laughs> ski that well and my edges are really dull, I'm hopeless. Right. Yeah. So um, it's exactly the opposite mindset. <laughs> so 
if if any if the take home message at all from all of this should be it's that the less skills you have the more you should play around with equipment setup and get it right for you because it's going to make it much easier for you excellent right and it makes it easier right. and better for everyone but it'll be most noticeable as you're you know as you're working on developing and you're trying to learn excellent. new skills and you're fighting balance um it's when it's most important Excellent. Hey, so Lou, if, you know, <clears throat> if people are interested in seeking out some help from you in your shop, sure. how can they find you? Well, the shop is in Calgary. We see people from all over the world um, that happen to be in Calgary. Um, shops in Calgary. The website is lose.ca. Uh, the research for Nordica and Atomic is on the website, but so are lots of articles about boot fitting. I mean, we specialize in boot fitting. So there's lots of articles and videos about boot fitting, about Delta, and about equipment setup on the website. And there's going to be more generated this summer. And, uh, right. and then it's just a matter of calling, coming in, or, or you know, learning from the videos and, and getting someone somewhere else to apply it if you're too far away to come by. Because as I understand it, there's not many shops that have a Campbell balancer. No. No. <laughs> so, but you do. And so but we do. that would be the first. Yeah. So, so when, when I eventually get back over there, I'd love to come in and, and test it out. Sure. And, um, oh, that'd be great. Yeah. So yeah. Lou, thank and you very much again you're for welcome. your time. My pleasure. I think the skiing community is going to thank you for sharing your, uh, your insights and, and, and your research and your knowledge. So I'm thanking you on behalf of them already in advance. Thank you. <laughs> And uh, it's my we'll, pleasure. This is great. Excellent. We'll speak again soon. Okay. Thanks, Tom. Have a good week.